Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Mike Gaffari, for the introduction to our guest today, Mark Ganey, the founder of Strava. Strava is the number one app for runners and bikers and is a destination to record any activity. In this conversation, we talk about how Mark's passion for sports compelled him to start Strava and really what focus means as a founder. Mark has some really terrific examples about that. Um, We also talk about scaling and his approach to building community. This was a really fun conversation. I really hope you all enjoy. Without further ado, here's Mark. Mark, how are you? Life is good. Yeah, thanks, Mike, for asking. Yeah. So I'd love to start from the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to entrepreneurship? Were you always entrepreneurial-minded, do you think? Oh, man, you're taking me way back. I got to go to the prior century in college. Uh, I was injured my junior year, and so uh, a good friend of mine, Chris Moore, and I decided uh, we launched a uh, basically a concessions business for all the non-sort of uh, revenue sports. So we were busy selling hot dogs and cokes at you know indoor track and field and, and women's basketball and so forth. And you know you figure out pretty quickly that you can go buy a hot dog and a bun for nine cents at a local grocery store and turn around and sell it for two bucks. It's a pretty good margin. So you know I can go back to to my days in college and and see how much fun that was. Really, what happened was. After I graduated, I was fortunate enough to, my first job out of school was to work at a venture capital firm, a firm called TA Associates. And my job was very simple. It was to get on the phone and call entrepreneurs all day long, to call companies to learn their story and see if they might be an interesting investment. And uh, you do that enough times, you catch the bug. That was it for me. I, I, as much as I enjoyed learning from the partners I worked for and, and admire sort of that business of venture capital, I really had to go see what it was like to be on the other side of the fence. When you wanted to get back into entrepreneurship or maybe think to yourself, all right, I want to start a business that might be venture scalable. What was that decision making process like when you first founded your first company? Yeah, fond memories that time. So this was late 1995. I'd been at the venture firm for about four and a half years. So first thing I did was I realized I can't do this job I was hired to do and also figure out how to start a business simultaneously. It was just one was really consuming. So step one was I quit. And there's nothing like becoming an entrepreneur when you lose a paycheck and now you got to really sort of figure out how you're going to, you know, put food on the table and pay your rent. You know, that was phase one, not knowing what I was going to do, but just knowing I needed to put myself in a position where I could focus on it 100%. That doesn't mean that I didn't work. I went from working for a venture capital firm to literally working at a local running store selling shoes for eight bucks an hour. It helped put a little money on the table. It was a great group of people that I was working with, but more importantly, it was the kind of job that I could do for a few hours And then I could go and focus on my startup. So structurally, I put that in place. Second thing I did, Mike, was like two really important pieces of advice. Uh, One was from the venture guys that I worked for. Their advice was really simple. Go solve the problem. Even if you're a tiny little company, if you're solving a real problem for somebody, they'll listen. And the other piece of advice I had was from the entrepreneurs. Because, you know, as I talked to all these guys, they were... um, 
very much of the mindset that, look, you have to realize you're not going to make money at this anytime soon. It's going to be 24-7, 365 days a year. So might as well try to pursue something that you genuinely enjoy. And so what did I do? I started looking for problems related to sports. Uh, this is, again, circa 1995. I grew up as a runner and cyclist and skier, and I'd been a rower in college. And just I loved endurance sports and being outside and being active. So I was desperately seeking a problem related to, to sports and sort of athletic lifestyle that ultimately worked well for Strava, although I did take a detour because the, uh, the company that I founded in 1995 was not Strava. That's awesome. What were some of the differences starting a B2B company versus a B2C company in in Strava? It's interesting. Plenty of parallels and then some pretty stark and important differences. So yeah, the the one that I ended up doing in 1995, it's kind of ironic because we really did pursue what was called Kana Sports at the time. Like we did have this idea that was Strava. So Strava's first incarnation was back in 1995. We still had the original business plan. It was this idea of a virtual locker room for athletes and, you know, trying to solve this problem of finding motivation and staying inspired and realizing that when you have a team around your or people that you're connected with who are sort of cheering you on, that's helpful. So that was the vision and the first idea. And we learned that there were some problems with that idea. Like it, we couldn't figure out the business model. And there was it was very early Internet and trying to get people to, to even capture activities, let alone post them, was, was going to be challenging. But in the process of pursuing kind of sports, we were introduced to a very different problem, which was customer email. That companies were building these websites, sporting good companies that we were talking to were building websites for the first time. And they never really dealt with the end consumer before. They always had retailers and, and stores and things that sort of interacted, but online, these customers were coming to them. So Kana was born out of that. We built, as you described, a B2B business. We sold customer email software and went very well. You fast forward to Strava, which we then launched almost 10 years later to get to your question. I'll give you just two simple differences. One, in the consumer space, it's all about the customer. We obsess 100% of the time on our athletes. Like, what do they need? Do I look at the landscape and the industry and so forth? Absolutely. Am I understanding who we're partnering with and what the alternatives are out there? Absolutely. In the enterprise space, we also care deeply about our customer. We're building products for them, but we were acutely aware of our competition at all times. Like, the competition was ferocious. And if you didn't get that corporate account, you may not have another shot at them for three, four, five years. So one difference was just understanding that. The other difference was probably timing more so than B2B to B2C, but the rate at which software gets developed in, you know, today versus what we were doing in 1995, you know, 2000, if we got a release out every six or nine months, that was big. Now we release multiple times a day. The rate of change and what you can bring to the consumer and the consumer's expectation for what's possible very different from what it was the first time we built a company. Thanks for sharing that. It's interesting because we talk a bit about how sales cycle is obviously very different with uh, enterprise business versus consumer. Consumer, of course, it's almost rapid or in a second. And uh, enterprise, it could have months, if not years in terms of sales cycle. But also that's also interesting too, in terms of when you update new features or you just have new updates for your product. B2B, it could be months and, and, and consumer, as you just described, it could be as well, again, like multiple times a day, which is pretty, pretty amazing. You hit the nail on the head. I hadn't even thought about it until you mentioned it, but a huge difference for us. 
the notion of a sales force. Like Strava today, for all intents and purposes, doesn't have one. I mean, we have a few teams that really help us with brands and partners, but our business is a freemium subscription business. It, it all takes place via the app or our website. There is no one that's sitting there, whereas in the enterprise software world, massive investment in the sales infrastructure, in the teams, in the technologies that were required to, you know, I think at one point, Kana probably had 53 offices worldwide just for sales and sales support to manage the growth. So, yeah, very big difference in terms of go-to-market and what it is to actually build the revenue stream. What was the go-to-market entry? Talk to us a little bit about like the insight and why you decided to focus on cycling. The thing that we saw pretty quickly, when we entered the market in 2008, 2009, there was actually already a fair bit of activity when it came to activity tracking and, and logging and, and so forth. There was everything from um, RunKeeper on the East Coast, Map My Fitness, I think it was out of Texas and Colorado. Uh, Nike had a product with their Nike Plus. And most of them were focused sort of on the run community in various ways. So we already saw a lot of activity, but in different sports. When we analyzed cycling, really wasn't being addressed in the marketplace. When we looked at the cyclists themselves, they love their data, investing in the gear and the technology. They were investing in the GPS devices. They were using power meters. They were, you know, all kinds of interesting data that we could work with from a software perspective. And the demographics of a cyclist were really fascinating. It was just, it's a well-educated, you know, high-income demographic, and so there were things about that group, while it looked small at the time, it was sort of narrow in its focus, we felt like that is a great sort of wedge into what can be, you know, our vision, which was supporting this global community of athletes across a broad spectrum of sports. But, so it was really a go-to-market strategy. A really great conversation I had with a good friend who's written books on subscriptions. She's very, very sharp. And we were having a meeting one day early about Strava, and she asked me this very poignant question. She said, you know, Mark, tell me a little bit about your target audience. And we happened to be sitting in Starbucks at the time. It just so happened that over in the corner of the Starbucks was a group of cyclists who had just finished a ride and were kind of having their post-ride latte or whatever. And I said, see that group over there? That's our audience. And she said something really interesting, which was you know, her eyes kind of lit up. And she said, you know, Mark, I often ask that question. And what I'll get from an entrepreneur is the beauty of our business is that anybody can be our audience, anybody in here. She says, but actually that's really challenging, particularly in your early stage, because when you don't understand who your customer is and how you're going to communicate with them and what you're trying to build for them, it's really hard, particularly when, again, when you're of a size where you have limited resources, limited scope. So it was, to me, that was just validation that, yeah, it looked too small. And trust me, investors and others who looked at it was like, too small, too niche. But what they're missing is not to get confused between a go-to-market strategy, which needed to be focused. We often use the phrase, go inch wide and a mile deep. It's not that that's the end game. That's the way in which you actually build credibility. That's where you build confidence so that you can then think about what expansion looks like. How should entrepreneurs that are listening think about go-to-market first vision? Because you could have a very massive vision, which of course you should, right? You should be changing the world. If you're not changing the world, then that's fine. But also probably in terms of if you want to fundraise or uh, raise venture capital funding, it might not be the right fit. Right. But at the same time, your go to market has to be very, very niche, very, very specific. How should one think about segmentation and who early adopters really are for a product? It's a great area, you know, in no particular order. I think the thing first you already identified, let's make sure we separate out the difference between vision and strategy. You know, go to market is a strategy. So we've got this vision of changing the world, or in the case of Strava, we absolutely we believe in sort of 
really being there to support and motivate and inspire the world's athletes across this globe, across different genders, race, sports, activities. Now, how are we going to get there? From day one to say we're going to do that, everything for all of them all the time, that was unrealistic. So you have a good, you have a set of strategies. And at least for me, I have two companies now where in both cases, I was accused by outsiders and so forth of being too small, too early, too niche, picking a niche and going after it. In the case of Strava, it was going after what we referred to affectionately as mammals, middle-aged men in Lycra. That was, that was the target audience. And yeah, it did look niche, but it was a strategy to then help us sort of go up to other segments, as you described. In the case of Kana, our first product was customer email response. There was a, I remember one venture guy said, you know, this isn't even a product. This is a feature. Not, it's definitely not a company. You're like a feature inside an app. And, and the only thing we kept saying was, we hear what you're saying, but the customers are buying the product. Like, they're, like there's clearly a need. And what they were missing was, in the case of the B2B opportunity, by solving that real problem, they were paying us and we were now getting installed and becoming their partner when it came to customer email. And from there, there was all kinds of opportunities to expand. There were ways in which we expanded within the customer support area. There were ways in which we expanded email into marketing. And so the expansion comes with success with your customer. And the same is true here with Strava. What we found was by building for that niche, two things happened. One was, turns out athletes are rarely one sport people. Turns out that cyclists run sometimes, they ski, they, they do different things. And so our, our, our cyclists helped us understand where we should go and expand out. The other thing it did was it just simply gave us confidence in the market that we could now use our strength and our success to begin investing in what that next segmentation should look like and, and where the next market segment should be. And whether that was a vertical or a geography, you know, those are just fun strategy discussions that we would end up having in both companies. At the very beginning, like who was the first person on the platform? Um, and how did you think about like very, very early, not even growth, but just like validation? Yeah, my partner, Michael, has a great phrase that I really appreciate. It's like, you know, you have to be comfortable early at doing things that don't scale. Every entrepreneur, everyone's like, you know, but is it, does it scale? Does it scale? Like, the answer is don't. Don't try to do things at scale. So the stories I would tell you about our early adopters and our early customers, like, first off, I remember, like, our first true sort of non-employee who was on our platform, his name is David. He's still on the platform now, 12 years later. I know who he is. Today, we add between two and three million athletes every month. So, you know, the scale comes, but early on, it's who do we know and who could we convince to, to try this and how do we build a partnership with them versus making them their customer? We did crazy things, Mike. We, we realized that, uh, so one thing that many people don't know about Strava, when we launched, we weren't mobile. You had to use a third-party device manufactured by Garmin on your handlebars, basically. You would take it off your handlebar, you'd plug it into the back of a computer, and then you could upload the data to our website. So we had to figure out a way to find these Garmin owners. And one of the things that we did was we went to Costco and we ordered up, I don't know, hundreds of Garmin devices. We probably spent, you know, 50 grand of our own money just to acquire all these Garmin's that we could then give away to friends and relatives and others. Why? Not because we thought we were going to be in the business of giving away Garmin's, but it developed enough of a following that we could start to get the feedback we needed to then think about all right, how do we develop something that's more scalable beyond that? And yeah, we recruited our friends and we built word of mouth into the program. I think that's the other thing that's important about Strava is um, 
Strava is more fun with your friends. And we knew that philosophically just because of the importance of team, but it really proved to be beneficial to the business as well. Did you ever think of well in terms of product offering that, hey, maybe we'll actually go and actually make our own hardware? It feels like the question comes up twice a year. The whole notion of vertical integration. Uh, you're absolutely right. So, you know, should Strava vertically integrate and, and think about sort of that comprehensive solution? The answer is no. We're pretty steadfast in our belief that we are a software company. It's what we're good at. And in fact, it's more important that we're really good at partnering with, being a great partner to the device manufacturers that are out there. It took us some time. Early years, it was hard to, frankly, it was hard to convince Garmin to even take a phone call from us. But if you fast forward to today, I mean, I venture to guess we probably have 500 plus device manufacturers that plug into Strava. There isn't a significant one in the planet that doesn't. We've acted like Switzerland. We've been very clear we're not going to be in their space. That's not our intent. We want to see them be successful and we want to enhance their users' experience on their devices. So today, whether it's a Garmin, it's an Apple Watch, it's a Peloton bike, uh, you name it. If you're out using a device to enhance your activity, we just simply want to ensure that we can work with that device. Uh, and that's important for our athletes. Uh, it's, it's good for the business, but it's important for athletes because it just turns out that depending on their modality, right, the sport that they're in, they may be using something very different. And so it's easier for us to just be wherever they are and be connected in a way that makes the most sense. So in some ways, your approach to building Strava was actually growing by partnerships, essentially, where you have just a lot, a lot, a lot of partnerships with these companies, as long as they're able to share data, obviously. And so the users actually use Strava as their own, their centralized hub, per se, for their analytics. Is that roughly correct? Yeah, that's a good description. Absolutely. I mean, we have a mobile app built on both Android and, and iOS, and, and a vast majority of our members actually probably come through the app. They've decided that they want to track their activities or they've heard from their friends that they want to join the Strava community. And so they'll use the app. But in doing so, what they also then realize is, oh, wait, you mean that that, again, that Sunto watch or that polar heart rate monitor or that the Zwift activity that I'm doing, I mean, you name it, right? Today, whatever, that also integrates into Strava. Oh, great. Then that makes it easier. And they can see that from their friends, from what comes on their feed. So part of our growth was clearly just ensuring that if you're out there being active, let's make sure that we're able to, to connect to that in a seamless way. That's awesome. And when did you first create the mobile app and what was kind of like the reaction? Was there this overwhelming just like exhaust from users that, oh, now there's just not that much friction anymore in terms of uploading things on Strava? Because also launching a mobile app, that's a lot of hard work. The reason we hesitated in 2009, right, is if you think about it, so iPhone launched in 2007, they were out there, but... It took us a little while, in part because the technology just wasn't there. Uh, somebody yeah. was going out on a long bike ride. The battery life wasn't very good. GPS chipsets in phones were kind of, you know, the early days, so you couldn't necessarily trust the data. So it took a little while for the technology itself in the phones to get to a point where it was meaningful for an athlete and, and could be used effectively. I think it was early 2011, where ironically, Mike, what we were trying to do was solve a pretty tactical problem. We felt comfortable that the mobile phones now were reaching a point where we could use them. And what we really wanted to do was develop an alternative. The only way you could join Strava was to go out and spend a couple hundred dollars minimum on a Garmin device and then plug that into Strava. So if we could reduce, like you said, that friction and reduce the cost of participation, that hurdle, what could happen to the growth of our community? And so we built a very rudimentary mobile app, you know, something that for all intents and purposes just acted as a basic 
stopwatch, like a tracker. And our hope was, this is a great irony, they're going to use our mobile app now to track their activity, but then they're going to go to our website and see all these wonderful features that they get after they've you know, done a ride. The good news was in launching our mobile app, it absolutely changed the trajectory of our business. Like the growth, now that we were on the app store and you kind of had the viral effects of that, we began to see tremendous growth, both here in the U.S. as well as abroad. International really took off. On the downside, we learned a lesson very quickly, which is that if you download an app, I mean, it's intuitive today, but back in 2011, we weren't quite so smart. If you download an app, you kind of assume that that's the experience. Like you don't think about also going to that company's website. That was actually a moment in time where we made the strategic choice to go raise additional capital, build out our mobile team, and really begin the process of becoming what we call a mobile first company. And it took us, frankly, a number of years to to just get comfortable in that mode where we were now sort of really building Strava on a mobile platform versus the web where we started. What was like investor feedback when you were going out and fundraising and that whole fundraising experience? That is quite a pivot, right? Going from like a browser web and then also, you know, in Garmin, in watches type company um, in terms of tracking analytics to actually becoming mobile first. That was just one of the many hurdles, but I would actually point to the, you know, it's funny today when you look at sort of the, enthusiasm and interest and investment in health and wellness and fitness categories and so forth. What's hard for people to fully appreciate was that wasn't always the case. I can tell you all of our rounds were often met with a level of skepticism, you know, things like, is fitness really that large a market? You know, there was always issues around addressable market. There were going to be issues around sort of that mobile transition. There was always going to be issues around, well, you did it in cycling, but can you really do it across other sports? There were questions around, is this a lifestyle business or are you guys actually building something of of significant value and, and size and scope? So I can look back, Michael and I, probably one of the most fortunate things for me was having worked at, at TA for almost five years, totally get the business that the venture guys are in. I, I understand what they're trying to do and, and how to speak their language. We faced headwinds, you know, we, as we tried to raise capital and we've got amazing investors behind us today. That's the great thing. And folks who've been with us a very long time. Yeah, we've been really fortunate. The partners we do have, they've been with us through thick and thin. And, um, you know, I think they're, hopefully they're happy with the result. Thinking about addressable market, it reminds me of a conversation that I had with Eric Paley, who said that the one thing that he believes a lot of investors notoriously gets wrong is total addressable market. Because if you really think about it, investors should be trying to invest in companies where the markets actually might be quite small, but have massive growth rates, right? And it's one of those things that's always lagging. You know, right now, you know, those categories that you mentioned are very attractive right now. But a few years ago, when you actually maybe could have gotten the biggest returns, right? They weren't. So it's always kind of lagging there. Yeah, I think it's such a great observation. And it's, there is this misconception around what addressable market actually is. If I take both my companies, email, Yeah, email at the time looked like a little feature, but what they were underestimating was that became the mode of communication on the internet. Even today, here we are 25 years later, it's like, it's still the primary mode. You don't pick up the phone. People don't, people don't talk on the phone. So, but you couldn't see it early. And we weren't even professing to say, hey, you're missing the boat. It's, it's this large. We were just simply saying, you're missing the speed of change. Like this is, there's such a rapid adoption. And I think the same thing happened for us at Strava. Even we were surprised. There was this renaissance in cycling over the last 10 or 15 years that I don't think we could have anticipated that only once again got accelerated during the pandemic. Every time we think cycling is going to slow down, it actually accelerates again. So 
you fast forward today, Strava, we, we have more runners and hikers and walkers on Strava than we do cyclists. Like today we support 30 different activities and, you know, it's fairly well diverse, but we're still really pleasantly surprised. Every year we think that we're kind of tapping out in the cycling market, not even close. No, we just keep seeing it grow. Thinking about, you know, now since you host over 30 activities, I know you started out with cycling. I remember we spoke before how you were very focused on cycling for a few years. When did you decide to branch out of cycling? And what was that process, just strategy process like? So the timing was around 2012, 2013. We made a choice. It's time for us to move into a complementary market. As I mentioned earlier, part of it was driven by our existing customers. I was a customer and I was using it to ride mountain bikes, but I was also posting my runs kind of despite the fact that it wasn't built for it, right? So we were kind of seeing that, but we also knew that if this is going to be a successful business, this was part of our strategy. Part of our go-to-market was time. And uh, this is where it gets really funny because this is where we made lots of mistakes. So, uh, or at least we tried different things that we had to evolve. We underestimated the importance of really having to be authentic for our running community in the same way we've been for cycling. I think there was this optimism on our part that we could take the cycling experience, sort of reskin it, do some basic design work, but in essence kind of bring that to the to runners and they would have just as much fun. No, we learned very quickly that to do it right meant, frankly, hiring running DNA into the company, getting people who thought about and could connect with runners, taking a step back and really understanding the run experience, which is different. Cyclists are inherently social. They tend to go out, they tend to ride with each other. They'll, they'll be in groups on the weekends, kind of high functional utility to running. I can put on my shoes and my shorts and go out my door for 30 minutes and I can do it solitary. And there's elements of it that are different enough that we had to rethink what kind of feedback and what kind of what we call surprise and delight, like what we could do to really, you know, just create fun for runners. And so that took time. We had to build patience into it. And then the third thing I'll mention was we originally launched two separate apps all together. Like we had our cycling experience and we had our run experience and never shall the two meet. We were very concerned about, we didn't want our cyclists to feel like somehow we were abandoning them. And so for the early, gosh, probably first year and a half, two years, we had these two apps. Now, the downside to that is it kind of cannibalized itself when it came to growth and the app stores and so forth. So ultimately we made the decision to just make one Strava and you know make it easy for any of our athletes to decide sort of what they want to track and, and, and so forth. But those were just early lessons around once we made the decision, how to go about it. Yeah, it's not that they're antisocial by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, you know, we're, we're doing races, we have our run clubs, there's, there's lots of opportunity to gather, but what we find there's just different behavior patterns. Even the cyclists can go out and explore, frankly, more easily on any given ride, whereas runners, again, the efficiency, and, and I'm a perfect example, like I now use Strava to help me explore in ways that I hadn't in the past, but I'm also a creature of habit. And I know my three mile loop and my five mile loop and, and, you know, and I'll go run those. And so once we figured that out, we could begin to create features and services that sort of rewarded people around that. Um, Things like matched runs. It's a simple sort of iteration on what had always been something inside Strava, which were segments for cyclists, but by rethinking how that should show up for a runner made all the difference in terms of, again, being authentic, which, it leads to high engagement, which leads to loyalty, which leads to, you know, again, good things for our athlete and good things for Strava. What was your approach to community? And 
the idea of sharing it and making it a social experience than just, hey, here are your analytics. So I'll mention a couple of things. One thing we appreciated was we're not necessarily in the business of building community as much as we're in the business of supporting the community that already exists. So what I mean by that is, and it's not, there's this global community that is Strava, but what we really see on Strava are all of these micro communities. It's your group of friends that you're probably training with or that somehow you're connected with through your athletic life that you want to stay connected and, and want to, again, sort of support and inspire each other. When we launched segments, so a segment for anybody who happens to be listening is just a stretch of road or trail that is of interest to you that you can track in Strava. And then anytime you or somebody else goes on that, we will give you the information around how you did, how you're doing historically, where you fit on a leaderboard and that. That came from an insight we had in talking to cyclists where cyclists were always saying, hey, I might go on a five mile ride or a hundred mile ride, but what really matters to me are those two really great climbs that I did in the middle of the ride. Like climbs were just like the thing for cyclists. And so we figured out, oh, let's help auto-identify the climb in that ride so that when they upload to Strava, we can show them how they did on that. And it was our athletes who then said, oh, this is great. Can I see how my friend did on it? He didn't ride with me, but he rode it the day earlier. And we're like, oh, yeah, we could easily do that comparison. And so by building that comparison engine, and now you have leaderboards, because now we started to create, well, here's the fastest and second fastest, and this is where KOMs and QOMs came from. All of a sudden, what we had was what I would refer to as authentic community. We had these social features, these community features. And when you do that, and then you begin to also recognize that, yeah, it's really fun to follow a few friends and and begin to kind of congregate in Strava, that turned out to be the winning recipe. That the combination of building a few social features in while acknowledging that we're there to support an existing community, it worked. It's this balance between listening and it's not that we're necessarily building exactly what they're telling us to build, but we're trying to understand what's motivating you out there, what's doing it. And it, and it turned out it was this combination of a little bit of sort of data along with the social connection that creates the community. Because why? Because what is an athlete then doing? A cyclist is now telling their friends who aren't on Strava, hey, you got to get on. We've all got to see how we did on that climb, right? So that's a, it builds in this, now you have this viral loop and drives all kinds of really good things. Were there other features that you introduced that helped people to motivate and worked and maybe some features that you experimented with maybe didn't work, like didn't quite work to get people to want to go for a bike ride or want to go for a run or another outdoor activity? A name an obvious one that's worked really well for years now inside Strava are just Strava challenges. Uh, and challenges are things that you can sign up for uh, any given month. Some of them are unique to Strava. Some of them are ones that we, we have sponsors that are involved with. But in essence, these are, and they run the gamut. Some of them are challenges like, you know, be active no less than three days a week for four weeks in a row, or they might be how many miles can you run in the month of, of April? Or you know, there's there's all flavors of them today. We'll have over a million people who will sign up for a given challenge in a month. And I think that that's, it's a nice balance because you can use that to compete against others. But oftentimes the challenge is just for personal, just for personal awareness. It's just, it's just to motivate themselves. So That's an easy one that we've seen a lot of great adoption. It's fun to work with our partners on it because there's ways we can, you know, create rewards and and incentives. I'll tell you a feature that we had years ago that we don't have anymore that I appreciated, but was challenging on a number of fronts. We used to have this one where you could see of your friends on Strava that you followed, you could see who was active at any moment in time. So 
I would open up my app sometimes right when I wake up in the morning and I'd be stunned. It might be five 30 or six in the morning and I'd open my app and I'd immediately see like four of my friends are already out on the road, you know, whether it's doing an early morning run or a ride. And for me, that was actually inspirational. I used to always think, all right, if they're already out there, I, I know I can find half an hour to go do something. Um, for a variety of reasons, the future doesn't exist today. You know, maybe it'll come back, but that's a good example of, I mean, I could share with you lots of places where we've experimented around different things and we'll take them and bring them back or we'll reiterate on something. And, you know, I hope entrepreneurs all, all know out there, it's, it's the beauty of software. It's really hard to kill software companies. Um, you have to be willing to keep iterating. You got to keep, keep innovating. You got to be willing to, to take risk. Oh, totally. What were some of the, the major hurdles that you had to overcome that you later saying, wow, I'm so glad we got that right. That might've pushed us back a year or we might not have done as well or grew as quickly as, as you did. Well, I think we've touched on a couple of them. I think that you know, two, obviously already, it just moving that transition from web to mobile was a big change for us that required you know, thought and, and time and investment and capital and, and team, the transition across, you know, to multiple sports. And, and there's been, there's mul multiple versions of that. There was the move from cycling to cycling and running, and then, you know, cycling and running and swim and, and kind of covering triathlon and kind of the endurance space. But then really there was another shift where we began to work with partners. As you described, we had something called Gym and Studio Sync, where we started to realize that we should be somewhat sport agnostic here. Like you're out there and you're being active how can we just ensure that you can capture that on Strava? And so just even that mindset of beginning to think more holistically across all the activity spectrum, and we're still going through that. That's a transition that we're still in the middle of. Strava from almost day one was an international company, despite ourselves. And I think it's, it's indicative of just sort of the universal nature of sport, particularly cycling and running, and the way that the world operates today. We're all networked. We don't have to be in that same location. So very early on, we were faced with the challenge of, okay, wait a second, how do we support this global community? And if I fast forward to today, Mike, I mean, 82% of our members are outside the US. We have uploads in north of 190 countries. You can literally see uploads going to the top of Everest. You can see uploads going to the South Pole. It's just this fascinating universe. And as I mentioned earlier, these are all micro communities. These are all communities that are having a, a really specific experience. So how do we do a great job of supporting that that Dutch road cyclist who's really passionate about their cycling, but, but may very well be doing Nordic skiing in the winter when there's snow on the ground. And simultaneously, we're taking care of that trail runner in, in Brazil or that urban runner in Sao Paulo who is running in the evenings when the temperature gets cool and it's, it's safe to be on the roads. And these are very different athletic experiences where they're both connected on Strava and how to bring authenticity to them that's one of the things that we're constantly, even today, still trying to figure out how we do that right. What's next? What's the next frontier for Strava? Yeah, I would love to kind of learn more about what you're envisioning for the next five to 10 years. Well, I mean, we have a phrase and we mean this with all sincerity, which is we may be 12 years old, but we're just getting started. So, you know, Michael and I are on record that uh, we are not serial entrepreneurs. We do not want to go do seven startups by the time, you know, we're in the grave. Strava is the thing we want to spend, you know, the rest of our professional careers. We're excited with the team that we have to go do it. And it's a very simple premise. At Strava, you know, we, we have a mantra, which is one customer. That's the athlete. That's who we want to obsess over. That's what we want to be focused on. And, but we get very excited about the ways in which Strava can continue to expand its services to meet the needs 
of this, this growing population of people who've decided to be active in the world. And so, you know, what's in store for us? One is just one thing we've already been talking about, which is that while we used to be a cycling app company, that's not what Strava is today. Strava is a very diverse organization, whether it's across gender, race, activities, geography. And so we want to continue to think about how we expand kind of that, that universe of, of community, that global community that's out there and how we support them. Second thing is that there's just a set of services we haven't even started to touch on, right? Today at our core, it's really about sharing your activities with your friends on Strava and being inspired by that. And that will always be at our core. We, we often refer to the activity as the atomic unit inside Strava. That's, it's super important that we make that activity as fun, as inspiring. And, and you know, what can we do to help you tell your activity story every time you, you upload to Strava? But we can also see that we have information now about our athletes where we can understand everything from events they may be signing up for to, to gear that they might want to try to use to training principles that they might want to apply depending on what their goals are. So we're spending a lot of time trying to think about and understand what are those other ancillary services that make sense for Strava to offer its athletes over, like you said, the next five to 10 years. Do you always think that you wanted to be involved in sports in your career? Well, I mean, yes and no. I, I think I mentioned earlier how, you know, I was, I remember the entrepreneurs that I used to talk to back in my early career where like, you know, do something that you genuinely enjoy. And I used to call it the newsstand test, Mike. And what I mean by that is as an early stage entrepreneur, I always tell people, look, go to a local newsstand. If you're looking for ideas, well, newsstands, I don't even think they exist anymore. That's how old I am. So it used to be, right, it used to be this place where you could go and there'd be all these magazines and you'd, you'd go in. And, and I used to think that everybody who walked into this place and would pick out a magazine would pick out the same magazines that I love, which were outside, Sports Illustrated, cycling, skiing, powder magazine. It turned out people don't. Turns out some people go in there and they pick out cigar aficionado or good housekeeping or, you know, sunset. So I think one answer to your question is, Yes. At my core, um, I just love being active. Uh, I got twin boys that are now 20 years old. They, I've dragged them all over this planet to go do fun adventures and, and ride and ski and swim and surf. And it's a really important part of my life. Does it have to be the business that I'm in? Probably didn't have to be that, but I know I'm one of the luckiest people in the world because, yeah, I, not only do I get to live it, but I get to work it. And um, that's a blessing. I do recognize how fortunate I am to be able to have both. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? So two on the personal side. Uh, so Count of Monte Cristo uh, by Alexander Dumas. Like, look, I just, I love a good revenge novel better than anybody else. Like it's, it's such a good, you know, redemption, just so good. So I've actually read that a new number of times over my life and always loved Count of Monte Cristo. Endurance is another Great one. It's uh, the story of Ernest Shackleton's um, failed attempt at the Antarctic expedition. And just, I mean, that is, talk about perseverance. It's a fantastic book. So those are, those are two. At the professional side, um, there's a fantastic book written many years ago that I still refer to called Built to Last by Jim Collins. Just a great, great mind when it comes to businesses. And it was one of our Bibles at Kana. We actually gave Built to Last we gave Built to Last and The Art of War. Those two books went to every employee uh, at Kana. And we sort of like the yin and the yang of business. But we were very much inspired by this idea of um, 
Jim talks a lot about clock builders versus time tellers and, and that there's certain entrepreneurs who are clock builders who they just, they take the time to sort of build these iconic businesses. And that was inspirational to me. What's the best piece of advice that you've received? There was a, a VP of finance at Kana that uh, his name is Joe McCarthy. And I don't know where he got this, but it's always stuck with me. It's actually an equation and it's success equals results minus expectations. And as an entrepreneur, I come back to that so many different times uh, because the way I interpret that is it's around transparency. It's around being a partner with anybody, a partner, whether it's with an investor, whether it's with a, a customer, whether it's with an employee, with a teammate, it, but it's, you know, can you set an expectation where together you're going to go and exceed it? Uh, because when you do that, really good things happen. You, you, you build confidence, you develop sort of that, that mojo, I think then leads to further success. So that one's always stuck with me even years later. I love that. I love that. I think that's a great equation. Success equals results minus expectations. That's awesome. A final question to you is what's one piece of advice that you have for entrepreneurs currently? I like to remind them what I call my three P's and it's really simple. First one is persistence. Look, entrepreneurship is not about being the smartest person in the room. I'm definitely not. It's not about knowing every single thing that you need to know about your business. It's it's grinding. It's grinding. It's, it's just part of it's just persistence. It's, it's the old, what's Michael Jordan's thing? You know, how many failed baskets? Did it, you, know, you just, you just have to keep persisting. So persistence, second P is patience. You know, oftentimes, particularly in this Valley where I live here, Silicon Valley, there's often sort of this sort of just everything has to move at the speed of light. And there's truth to that. Like I do believe in sort of speed. We often joke speed over greed and, and things like that, but the good stuff takes time. Like you have to build patience into your model. And so I, I always try to just remind people to build that. And then the third P is perspective. We can often get lost here. And it's like, we got to remember, like particularly these startups, like we're incredibly fortunate to even be in these businesses and, and be building these things. And um, it's, let, let's keep things in perspective. Let's, let's make sure that we're probably having some fun along the way. You know, I'd like to think we're doing great things at Strava, but at the end of the day, we're, we're supporting people to have an active lifestyle and, and, you know, we want it to be the best part of their day. For better or worse, we're not curing cancer, right? I, I, right now, I probably wish that we were given the skin cancer I've got, but the reality is we're not. We're, we're trying to just be a, uh, a really great part of somebody's life overall and, and add some good there. Uh, but let's keep perspective because there's, there's a lot going on out there. I love that. The three P's, persistence, patience, and perspective. Well, Mark, this has been so great chatting with you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Ah, oh, Mike, it's my pleasure. Yeah, it's fun. Anytime. And there you have it. It was so much fun having Mark on the show. Mark, thanks again for coming on. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.